High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You Must Remember This is sponsored today by Slack. Create a new team and you'll get $100 in credit for when you decide to upgrade to a paid plan at slack.com slash remember this. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, The Blacklist. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? A quarantine is necessary to keep it from infecting read and advocates the views expressed. I had my way about it. They'd all be sent back to Russia. Back to Russia. I first became aware of the Hollywood blacklist when I was in college. Not because I was taught anything about it. I was not. But because in 1999, the Academy decided to give an honorary Oscar to director Elia Kazan. Kazan's creative accomplishments included giving Marlon Brando, James Dean, Warren Beatty, and Eva Marie Saint their first significant roles in films like A Streetcar Named Desire, On the Waterfront, East of Eden, and Splendor in the Grass, films that defined the look feel, and intellectual sensibility of American movies of the 1950s more than those made by any other individual director. But in the eyes of many, Kazan's filmmaking achievements were overshadowed by the fact that he had gone before HUAC in 1952 and named the names of almost a dozen people, eight of whom had been both communists and members of the group theater. Kazan knew this because, for a short time in the 1930s, He himself had been both a communist and a member of the group theater. The HUAC era paralleled a period of remarkable success for Kazan. The play A Streetcar Named Desire, which he also directed, opened on Broadway in December 1947. 
Kazan won an Oscar for directing Gentleman's Agreement in the spring of 1948, and that film was also named Best Picture. A year later, Kazan directed the stage debut of Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller. And all of this happened after May 1947, when Kazan was named as a subversive by Jack Warner in closed HUAC session. Kazan appeared before HUAC twice, in January and in April of 1952. The first time, in private session, he refused to name names. Three months later, he had changed his mind. Perhaps more damaging than his testimony itself was the statement he placed in the New York Times as a paid advertisement, justifying his testimony. It was this statement, more than the testimony itself, that inflamed passions against him. In the run-up to the 1999 Oscar ceremony, the mainstream entertainment media was full of stories about Kazan and his role in The Blacklist and the pretty much unparalleled run of great films that followed his testimony. The amount of press increased after Bernard Gordon, a blacklisted screenwriter who we've mentioned throughout this series, put out a call for Oscar night attendees to sit on their hands when Kazan was presented with the award. Anticipation swelled as the date approached. Who would, and who would not, clap for Elia Kazan? On Oscar night, outside the theater, there were protests, both against Kazan receiving the award and against Gordon's group's protest. Inside the theater, plenty of people stood up and clapped for Kazan, including Carl Malden, who had pushed the Academy to give Kazan the award, and Warren Beatty, Helen Hunt, and Meryl Streep. Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese appeared on stage and presented the statue to Kazan. The recognizable dissenters included Nick Nolte, Ed Harris, and Amy Madigan. Meaning, in the celebrity sweepstakes, the Kazan supporters won. It should have been a moment of exorcism, in which Kazan's reputation was, if not fully sanitized, then at least repaired somewhat by the forgiveness of many of his peers. Even actress Kim Hunter, who spent four years on the blacklist after starring in Kazan's A Streetcar Named Desire, said that Kazan's artistic achievement had nothing to do with what she called a mistake made years ago. But for some reason, for a long time, I remembered that Oscar night as confirmation that Kazan's artistic achievements deserved an asterisk. Though definitely more people stood up and clapped than didn't, I remembered it the other way around. Why? Maybe the headline of the story in the LA Times stuck in my head. Many refuse to clap as Kazan receives Oscar. In the body of that story, it was noted that Steven Spielberg clapped, but did not stand up. Spielberg was then the biggest celebrity director in the world, and he'd win that night for Saving Private Ryan. His inability to fully support or reject Kazan was symbolic of many who weren't sure which side to take. The viciousness of those who did not forgive Kazan was more powerful than the not unreasonable rationalizations of people like Hunter and Beatty who embraced him. Take, for instance, this quote from blacklisted screenwriter Abe Polonsky. About Kazan, I put it three ways, Polonsky said. One, I wouldn't want to be buried in the same cemetery with a guy. Two, if I was on a desert island with him, I'd be afraid to fall asleep because he'd probably eat me for breakfast. Three, we've already given him the Benedict Arnold Award, which is usually reserved for presidential assassins. Except he didn't kill a president, just his friends. It seems clear to me that the source of this kind of animosity stemmed from the fact that after Kazan named names, he thrived. In fact, it's hard to name another person who made such a high percentage of their great, well-remembered films after they named names. While other people were forced to leave the country to work or to ply their trades under assumed names for extremely reduced rates, Kazan was triumphing. And perhaps most galling to some, Kazan apparently took his cooperation with the committee as inspiration, infusing the themes of betrayal, informing, and even the conflict between leftist idealism and rugged individualism into a string of movies made immediately following Kazan's testimony. One of these movies, the multiple Oscar-winning On the Waterfront, is seen as a classic by most people. 
But the film has also been read as a defense of the informer, or even worse, a glamorization, especially in a decade in which Americans were instructed to look at media images for behavioral cues like they never had been before. Today we'll discuss how Kazan got to the decision to testify in 1952, and what happened next, including his run of films which seemed to reference his testimony, particularly on the waterfront. Join us, won't you, for the blacklist story of Elia Kazan. My emails are a mess, but phone and Skype Even worse, because there's no paper trail and no accountability. And in-person meetings are a total productivity suck. There's gotta be a better way. And there is. It's Slack. Slack is a messaging app for Teams. It brings all of your communication at work into one place, integrating with the tools and services that you use every day. Slack wants to make your life simpler, more pleasant, and more productive cobbling together a million different communication tools like email, IM, and Skype is not efficient, and it will leave you and your team frustrated. Slack pulls all those disjointed conversations into a single, organized, and searchable view. There's no better way to make faster decisions and increase transparency across teams. You don't just get messaging with Slack, they also make sharing files easy. If you use any services like Google Drive, Dropbox, or Trello, just paste the link and the document is immediately uploaded and searchable. Best of all, Slack users report 32% overall productivity increase, 48.6% reduction in internal email, and 25.1% fewer meetings. So visit slack.com slash remember this. Create a new team and you'll get $100 in credit for when you decide to upgrade to a paid plan. That's slack.com slash remember this. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. We don't usually talk about sources in the content of these episodes, but I wanted to make an exception to note that one of our key sources this week is Elia Kazan's autobiography called A Life. If you haven't read this book, let me tell you a few things about it. It was first published in 1988, 12 years after Kazan had quit making movies to write novels, and it has a real strain of men's literature about being a man to it. It's sometimes shocking because it's so self-revealing in a way that seems to lack self-awareness, or maybe more accurately, the instinct of self-preservation. In other words, he doesn't stop himself from writing things that make him look like an asshole. He publishes crude diary entries about a mistress and his obsessions with her anatomy. He's openly chauvinistic in his attitudes toward women. He makes cruel, petty observations about former friends and collaborators, 
from Clifford Odets's Taste in Women to Orson Welles's Late in Life Obesity to the fact that Marlon Brando chose to quote-unquote hide in Tahiti. He writes things that are sort of needlessly personally mean, like, I've only hated two people in my life. One was Tallulah Bankhead. He's the master of backhanded shade. He calls Joe Mankiewicz a handsome man in that non-muscular way many women prefer. Kazan has been accused of self-justifying, an offense he is said to have committed in a number of different venues, from the New York Times ad he purchased immediately after his testimony, to his films, and finally in his book. And there is an element of that in the book, as we'll see, But the prevailing theme of Kazan's autobiography is that he's a man divided. He's constantly talking about living a double life. The way this manifests itself most frequently is in his sex life. He loves his wife. He needs a wife for non-sexual love and comfort. But he believes he equally needs sexual adventure. He eventually comes to see himself as a man divided artistically and politically, too. This makes sense that it would be the narrative of Kazan's life. As an artist, his greatest contribution was in elevating a new kind of acting, one that was, as he put it, a human life on stage. That is to say, behavior. Total, complex, and complete. Let's back up a bit. In 1933, at the lowest point of the Depression, Kazan became politicized. He started visiting factories, filling a notebook with the names of Russian films he needed to see and with scraps of unsympathetic dialogue he imagined bosses and government officials saying to working people. He became determined to make plays and movies about class struggle, what he called both the enduring drama of our time and the final conflict. At this point, Kazan was sort of an auxiliary member of the group theater the revolutionary, leftist acting laboratory that began the process of translating Russian theories into what would become known as method acting, which you'll remember from our episode about John Garfield. The group didn't think Kazan had what it took to be an actor, but he had proven himself a jack-of-all-hands-on-trades, so much that his nickname was Gadge, short for Gadget. So in the summer of 1933, the group invited Kazan to come to their summer retreat and perform the duties of a one-man set construction crew and all-around stagehand. He also took any bit part that was available, and by the end of the summer, the group had decided that Kazan was indispensable and let him in as a full member. At the end of the summer, when he discovered that his father, whose small business had failed, was sick, Kazan wrote in his diary, I know the source of his sickness, the capitalist system. He added, I will revenge him. He began the revenge by joining the Communist Party and a number of party-associated theater groups. After working with one collective, Kazan quickly soured on some of the fundamental aspects of the communist philosophy put into practice. I discovered that I was not a collective person or a bohemian, he wrote. I was an elitist. I don't like collectives, communities, convivial neighbors, unannounced visits, groups, and clubs. Even though I may say that companionship and living is an ideal, I certainly would not have liked sleeping three in a room. Where did they fuck? I wondered. And there seemed to be a meeting every night. I hate meetings. It was like a proto-Seinfeld routine about everything that annoyed Kazan about communist life. Kazan's disillusion increased sometime later, when after the group's successes with Clifford Odets' plays Waiting for Lefty and Awaken Sing, party higher-ups began manipulating the group theater to strike, in order to become a collective controlled by its actors rather than its directors. Given that the very idea of the strike was ordered by the party and not thought of by the actors, Kazan disagreed with it, and he refused to lead it. He was then dressed down at a meeting that took place above a bakery. With the smell of chocolate and cinnamon in the air, a powerful emissary of the party led the assembled through what was called democratic centralism, which was when, to quote Kazan, a leading comrade lays down the true dope and everybody thinks it over and says, I agree. Then they all go home and do what he said. At the end of the meeting, 
After the leading comrade laid down his dope, there was a vote to kick Kazan out of the cell. And the result was unanimously against him. He was not sad. He was ready to go. He was too much of an individualist. And as he puts it several times in his book, an elitist, to believe in a system in which the people agree to operate collectively because their bosses tell them to. But Kazan continued to think like a communist, as he put it. He continued all of his socially conscious theater work, and he continued to believe in the code of silence that surrounded communist members and activities. The group theater disbanded, and Kazan co-founded the Actors Studio, which would carry on the teachings of so-called method acting. Kazan then went out to Hollywood. Brought there by an acting gig, he committed himself to learning everything about how filmmaking worked that he could. He went back to New York and directed Thornton Wilder's play The Skin of Our Teeth, starring the aforementioned hated Tallulah Bankhead. Next came offers to direct films. He made his directing debut in 1945 with an adaptation of the novel A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, and his first major success came two years later with Gentleman's Agreement. We've talked about this film in previous episodes in this series, released the same year as RKO's anti-anti-Semitism noir Crossfire, Gentleman's Agreement, starring Gregory Peck as a reporter who poses as a Jew and John Garfield as an actual Jew, made similar subject matter more sanctimonious and thus more digestible and accessible. By the time the Oscars rolled around in 1948, the director and producer of Crossfire had both served as unfriendly witnesses during the first round of HUAC hearings. Gentlemen's Agreement had no such liability, and at the Oscars, it cleaned up, winning Best Picture, Best Supporting Actress for Celeste Holm, and Best Director for Kazan. Given what was to come later in Kazan's career, that Gentlemen's Agreement won him an Oscar was kind of nuts. He pretty much never again made a film that was so visually boring, and his true feats in terms of directing actors were definitely still to come. Even Kazan himself would imply that it was more producer Daryl Zanuck's movie than his own, claiming he dropped it two-thirds done in Zanuck's lap. That's how eager Kazan was to get out of Hollywood and back to Broadway, where he was to direct a streetcar named Desire. Tennessee Williams assessed that the best quality of his play, A Streetcar Named Desire, was, quote, its authenticity or its fidelity to life. There are no good or bad people. Some are a little better or a little worse, but all are activated more by misunderstanding than malice, a blindness to what is going on in each other's hearts. Nobody sees anybody truly, but all through the flaws of their own egos. That is the way we all see each other in life. This is, ultimately, what is revolutionary about A Streetcar Named Desire. But it might not have come through if not for Kazan's direction, which began with his casting. He was determined not to use stars whose reputations would precede them. This was not the instinct of the play's producer, Irene Mayer Selznick. If you haven't heard it already, this is when you might want to go back and listen to episode number 65 of this podcast, which details Irene's relationship to her father, Louis B. Mayer, and her husband, David O. Selznick. Given these powerful star system inventing influences in her life, it's no wonder she had wanted to cast a movie star. First John Garfield, and then Burt Lancaster, who had just made a memorable film debut opposite Ava Gardner in The Killers. But then Kazan sent a kid he had met through the actor's studio to meet with Tennessee Williams. Marlon Brando had spent the $20 Kazan had given him for car fare on food and had instead hitchhiked to the meeting, showing up late. But in the end, it didn't matter because Williams fell in love at first sight and Brando became their Stanley Kowalski. It was Irene Mayer Selznick who brought in Kim Hunter to read for Stanley's wife, Stella. Hunter had started her Hollywood career under contract to David O. Selznick, who loaned her out to RKO to appear in Tender Comrade and the Val Luden film The Seventh Victim. She also went to England to appear in the incredibly weird David Niven wartime fantasy A Matter of Life and Death, directed by Powell and Pressburger. Selznick eventually dropped Hunter, but his ex-wife remembered her and suggested she come in to read. Kazan wholeheartedly approved of the casting. The minute I saw her, I was attracted to her, Kazan later wrote. 
which is the best possible reaction for a director when casting young women. Kazan was in the habit of having extramarital relationships with the actresses he directed, a habit which he defended. He was not promiscuous or a womanizer, he said, precisely because many of his affairs happened at work, as a quote-unquote natural outgrowth of the paternalistic relationship between an actress and her director. Anyway, A Streetcar Named Desire achieved a kind of alchemy of realism and heightened emotion. It was a smash hit, an instant classic, and Brando, an actor whose realism had never been seen before, in a package that was almost too visceral in its physicality, sparked a revolution in performance and stardom that would change cinema. Kazan swiftly moved on to directing Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman. Though Kazan's life had no shortage of the kind of sexual melodrama that filled Streetcar, he was more ready to embrace salesmen as being close to his personal experience. Kazan's father had been a salesman, and Kazan had felt that the mercenary aspects of the American capitalistic way of life had destroyed him. This is what Death of a Salesman was about, at least as Kazan saw it. The play was just as big a hit as Streetcar, winning tons of awards, and in working together, Kazan and Miller became best friends. Miller started writing a screenplay about Brooklyn dock workers with the idea that Kazan would direct it. In the meantime, Kazan took a couple of Hollywood assignments that bored him and then revitalized his interest in filmmaking with Panic in the Streets, a movie about a viral plague shot on location on the streets of New Orleans. This experience made him excited about making a film of Streetcar, about opening the story up beyond the limiting locations available on a stage, and bringing to life the texture of the world the characters lived in. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. At this point, Kazan was well aware that he was at an unusual point of prestige and power. He believed that after his recent wave of successes, there was nowhere to go but down. To his surprise, Kazan was not subpoenaed in 1947, along with his old college buddy Albert Maltz and nine other men categorized as unfriendlies. If you believe the way he tells the story in his memoir, Kazan seems to have been preoccupied with his personal life, which included an affair with Marilyn Monroe, and his success. It seems like he was not bothered much by the HUAC investigations or the bubbling of the blacklist. He does take credit for rescuing Zero Mostel off the blacklist by casting him in Panic in the Streets in 1950. And that same year, Kazan and Miller's attempts to produce the latter script, The Hook, about dock workers in Brooklyn, led to an encounter with union watchdog Roy Brewer, who wanted Miller to make changes to the script to make the union men explicitly anti-communist. Miller decided he didn't want to make the movie on Brewer's terms, and he called Kazan and told him he was out. Kazan claimed to have been mystified as to why Miller suddenly backed away from the project. Kazan spent most of 1951 in Mexico, making Viva Zapata, and he was during that time uninvolved in the panic that was rippling through the Hollywood community. But even as Kazan was piling up one professional triumph after another, he was also making the dishonor roles of organizations like the American Legion. The Catholic Legion of Decency had condemned a streetcar named Desire, and in what Kazan believed was a related event, finally, in December 1951, he got his subpoena. When Kazan first appeared before HUAC on January 14, 1952, it was a closed-door interrogation. He decided before he went that he'd be completely transparent about his own relation to the party, but he would not discuss anyone else. When asked if the group theater was a communist front, Kazan said it had not been, and he noted that its three founders were not communists. 
They asked him if John Garfield was a communist, and Kazan said he was not. They asked about Clifford Odets. Kazan internally rolled his eyes that the committee was so star-crazy, but said out loud that he would not answer questions about Odets. The committee member asked Kazan if he knew the penalties for being found in contempt of HUAC. He knew. Another congressman asked Kazan to name members of the group theater who had also been members of the party. He said he would not, and he specifically cited the damage it would do to their careers as the reason why not. Still, he left the session convinced that the committee already had all the names that they needed. He called it a degradation ceremony, in which the acts of informing were more important than the information conveyed. On his way out, Kazan was informed that the committee would probably want to call him back for public testimony. Back in New York, he went to see his shrink and told the psychiatrist that he would refuse to name names again. Wouldn't that make you unacceptable to the film industry? The shrink asked. Probably, Kazan acknowledged, but he said he'd thought it over and decided that he didn't need to make movies. He'd be fine working only in theater, and he even had some money saved. And then the shrink said, I'm wondering if your fellow members would do the same for you if they were called upon to protect you by endangering their careers. Kazan began to feel stuck in the middle. The paradox was that he was both anti-McCarthyism and anti-communist. This is how Kazan ultimately chose a side. First, Spiros Skouras, the head of Fox, called Kazan into his office and asked him to voluntarily testify again before HUAC, this time naming names. Skouras indicated that if Kazan didn't successfully clear his name, Fox would get out of business with him. And who would get into business with him? And then Skouras told him that he'd have to make an anti-communist film. Kazan responded that Viva Zapata which Kazan had directed and which Fox had just released, was an anti-communist film. Kazan claimed that the shoot had taken place in Texas because Mexican Reds had opposed the script, written by John Steinbeck. To Kazan, Viva Zapata was implicitly anti-communist because, quote, no communist in history has ever given power up once he'd gained it, and Zapata does just that. Skouros was not placated. And then, Huack released to The Hollywood Reporter details of Kazan's supposedly secret testimony. And then, Daryl Zanuck told Kazan to name names. And then, a streetcar named Desire, tipped to win all of the major Oscars, lost in the categories of Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor. Kazan believed that the industry was already turned against him, and that his days at work in Hollywood were close to over. And then he started thinking, what was it that he was trying to protect? As he wrote over 30 years later, Why had I tried so hard, and for so long, to stay in good with my old comrades, when I no longer believed in anything they stood for? Answer? I'd been trying to stay in good with all sides, to be liked by everyone, and to have it all, left, right, and center, just as I'd managed to have both Broadway and Hollywood, commercial success, and artistic eminence. I'd been successfully multi-faced. As he began leaning towards informing, Kazan determined that the deciding factor would be Clifford Odets. If he was going to name communists in the group theater, he'd have to name Odets who he still considered a close friend. He took Clifford out to dinner and laid it on the line. Not only did Kazan no longer believe in communism, but he associated keeping secrets, even from an invasive, probably unconstitutional congressional committee, with the worst of communism. Though he had quit the party 17 years earlier, he felt like he had blindly followed a conspiracy in not talking about communism and he didn't want to play a part in that conspiracy anymore. But he also didn't want to hurt his friend. If Clifford didn't give him permission to name his name, Kazan said, he wouldn't name any names. That night, Clifford Odets and Elia Kazan agreed that they were in the same boat. They would both name the same names. 
In approaching Congress and asking for a second public hearing, and at that hearing, naming the names of Odette's, Phoebe Brand, Paula Strasberg, and others, Kazan probably saved himself from going to jail in contempt of Congress, and more certainly, saved his ability to work in Hollywood, although his salary at Fox was much reduced due to him being a controversial figure. Amongst a large number of his friends, he wrecked his reputation. In an effort to mitigate the damage, he says, Kazan published a full-page ad in the New York Times, trying to explain why he had done what he had done. According to Kazan, this statement was actually written by his wife, Molly. It explained Kazan's brief history as a member of the party, his current distaste for anything communistic, and it forcefully argued that Americans, including liberals, had the obligation to answer Congress's questions and generally share any information they had about subversion. If Kazan had named names just to save his own career, he would not have been easily forgiven, but he would not have been the only one. But in the statement, he positioned the act of informing as the right thing to do. Later, he would admit that his own motives were not so noble. On some level, he said, he named names as an act of revenge for how he felt the party had treated him. But he was never openly repentant for his testimony, even on the days when he hated himself for it. The day after the Times statement ran, Kazan wrote this in his diary. Stayed home all day, miserably depressed, can't get my mind off it. I know I've done something wrong. Still convinced, I would have done something worse if I'd done the opposite. Hiding at home made him a captive audience for the many strangers who called him on the phone to yell at him. Kazan felt he had become, quote, an easy mark for every self-righteous prick in New York and Hollywood. His secretary at the actor's studio abruptly quit, and he was snubbed or ghosted by friends in the New York theater community, including, as we'll discuss next week, Arthur Miller. Enough people were plainly against Kazan that he began to become paranoid that everyone was against him. He couldn't decide if he wanted to be forgiven by his detractors or if he wanted to fight them. He had one picture left on his Fox contract, and at Daryl Zanuck's urging, that picture would be Man on a Tightrope, a drama based on a true story about an independent circus which found itself trapped in Czechoslovakia when that country became communist. Zanuck wanted to prove conclusively that Kazan wasn't a communist by having him make a movie that showed communists in a negative light. Kazan said he wanted to prove to himself that he was, quote, not afraid to say true things about the communists or anyone else. It's a little too perfect that the first movie that Kazan made after testifying to the anti-communist committee was a film about communism's threat to personal freedom. But nobody much remembers Man on a Tightrope, which Kazan says was taken away from him before he could edit it. The Kazan movies people remember happened after he returned from the tightrope location shoot, rejuvenated and determined to prove his haters wrong. In an effort to fill what he called the hole in his professional life left by Miller, Kazan reached out to Bud Schulberg, the son of the former head of Paramount, Schulberg had grown up in and around the industry and had written one of the great novels about the movie business, What Makes Sammy Run. What Makes Sammy Run was loved and hated. Before it was even published, the Hollywood Communist Party, of which Schulberg was then a member, tried to get him to make changes to the manuscript to make the story hew more closely to the party line. Schulberg refused, dropped out of the party, and in 1951, he testified before HUAC and named names. Kazan reached out to Schulberg, told him about his mystifying experience with Miller's The Hook, and Schulberg told him that he had written his own dock worker's screenplay about a real struggle that had gone down in Hoboken. Kazan's personal connection to the idea strengthened when, in the course of the extensive research process he and Schulberg committed to, they met a guy named Tony Mike, a longshoreman who had stopped cooperating with the mob that ran things on the docks and found himself unable to work. 
He was then subpoenaed by a waterfront crime commission. And instead of hewing to the code of silence of the streets, he told the commission everything he knew and named everyone he knew. Everyone had told him that he had to keep his mouth shut or he'd be dead. But he didn't keep his mouth shut. And he wasn't dead. He was sitting across the table from Kazan eating spaghetti. A light bulb went off in Kazan's head. What if you could make a movie that was pro-worker, pro-union, but anti-corruption, anti-conspiracy, a bold statement of anti-communist liberalism? On the Waterfront stars Marlon Brando as Terry Malloy, an ex-boxer who works for the gangsters controlling the local longshoremen's union. Over the course of the movie, he becomes disillusioned with them and decides to testify about their activities to the Waterfront Crime Commission, naming names. Brando had told mutual friends that he would never again work with Kazan. He had teared up when he had heard that his streetcar director had named names. That was a terrible thing Gadge did in Washington. I'm not going to work with him anymore, Marlin told Clifford Odets. But Brando added, But he's good for me. Maybe I'll work with him a couple times more. At least once. Reports vary as to how Brando's ambivalence was overcome, but either producer Sam Spiegel or Kazan himself wrote a letter to Brando which made him feel like he owed his sudden rise to the top of the star pyramid to Kazan. And Brando subsequently agreed to play the part. And so, the then most intriguing actor in the world became a stand-in for Tony Mike who was a stand-in for Kazan himself. Of course, the stakes of Malloy's conflict are much higher than those Kazan faced. Before Terry names names, they ruin his boxing career, involve him in a murder, make him work as a spy, kill another witness in front of him, send his own brother to deliver him to be murdered, and when that fails, kill his brother instead. Only when he has been betrayed totally, does he then betray by testifying. And even that only happens after the priest, played by Carl Malden, dissuades him from settling matters himself. Why don't you mind your own business? Firing lead into another man's flesh isn't being brave. It's none of your business. You want to hurt Johnny Friendly? Huh? You want to hurt him? You want to fix him? Do you? You really want to finish him? What do you think? For what he did to Charlie and a dozen other men who are better than Charlie? Then don't fight him like a hoodlum down here in the jungle because that's just what he wants. He'll hit you in the head and plead self-defense. You'll find him in the courtroom tomorrow with the truth, as you know the truth. Now you get rid of that gun. Unless you haven't got the guts, and then if you haven't, then you better hold on to it. This is exactly what Kazan always said he had done. Fight corruption the corruption of the American communists, and by extension, the murderous Soviet regime, by telling the truth. The ethical shades of gray of his own decision to inform were totally smoothed out in Malloy's story. In addition to all of the offenses committed against him personally, the men he will eventually inform against are also responsible for the death of Eva Marie Saint's character's brother. In telling the truth, Malloy not only stands up to the rotten system for his own sake, not only risking his own life, but in doing it for the sake of a beautiful blonde's quest for justice for her brother, his act of informing is posited as the act of a romantic hero. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Schulberg never acknowledged that his script was about his and Kazan's personal experiences as informers. And Kazan, too, spent years trying to move the conversation away from that area of inquiry insisting that the movie was about something much bigger than himself. But in his autobiography, Kazan finally admitted that On the Waterfront was autobiographical. He wrote, I did see Tony Mike's story as my own, 
And that connection did lend the tone of irrefutable anger to the scenes I photographed and to my work with the actors. He pointed to the scene at the end of the film, in which Malloy is confronted by one of the people he informed on. You want another trouble with you? You think it makes you a big man if you give the answers? At the right time, I'll catch up with you. Be thinking about that. Now go on, beat it. Don't push your luck. Wait a minute, you! You take them heaters away from you and you're nothing, you know that? You talk yourself in the river. You take the good goods away and the kickbacks and the shakedown cabbage and the pistol arrows and you're nothing. Your guts is all in your wallet and your trigger finger, you know that? You ran it on us, Terry. From where you stand, maybe, but I'm standing over here now. I was ratting on myself all them years. I didn't even know it. Come on. You give it to Joey, you give it to Dugan, you give it to Charlie, it was one of your own. You think you're God Almighty, but you know what you are? Come on. You're a cheap, lousy, dirty, stinking mug. And I'm glad what I've done to you. You hear that? I'm glad what I've done. That was me, Kazan later wrote. That was me saying, with identical heat, that I was glad I'd testified as I had. On the waterfront was my own story. Every day I worked on that film, I was telling the world where I stood and my critics to go fuck themselves. To cast Marlon Brando circa 1954 as your alter ego and have him, essentially, tell your haters to go fuck themselves? That took balls, even if the film's resolution didn't feel exactly authentic to viewers who knew the milieu. Martin Scorsese talks about the film in his highly personal documentary on Kazan, Letter to Elia. Now, there was an official theme to the picture, the part that's always been seen in the light of Kazan's testimony. I do. I do. See it, please. Standing up for yourself and breaking through the wall of silence. But Brando's character, Terry, triumphs at the end. You were the last one to see him before he was pushed from the roof. And where I came from, we knew that this was, in a way, a fantasy. except for the guys that pushed him off. Because people like Terry Malloy wound up dead in the river for informing on a regular basis. But at the time, I just accepted this as a convention that supported what was so special about the rest of the movie. On the Waterfront won eight Oscars and was nominated for four more. Brando got an Oscar, Eva Marie Saint got an Oscar, the film won Best Picture, and Kazan won his last competitive Oscar as director. Kazan believed that in testifying, and thus purging himself of his past, he had freed himself creatively. Over the next decade, movies poured out of him, and almost all of them were at least good. Some were great. East of Eden, Baby Doll, A Face in the Crowd, Splendor in the Grass. To Kazan, all of them were personal. To some outside observers, Given that Kazan not only never apologized for his role in The Blacklist, but justified it to the end, the movies of his which appeared to rehearse themes related to Kazan's unpopular decision can be seen as somewhat narcissistic, to put it mildly. I personally find that narcissism fascinating, particularly in the case of Wild River, which was probably the least successful Kazan film of the 1950s, though now it's a cinephile favorite. Set in the midst of the FDR administration, the movie stars a post-car crash Montgomery Clift as a representative of a New Deal organization, who, as part of a dam-building project, is sent to a tiny town on the Tennessee River to evacuate a handful of citizens whose land will be underwater once the dam is completed. There's one holdout, an old woman played by Joe Van Fleet, who will not budge. The epitome of the 1930s socialist good soldier, Clift is determined to carry out his orders. And as he hangs around town, trying to convince the old lady to leave, he falls in love with her gorgeous, wounded bird granddaughter, played by Lee Remick. The film becomes a strange, romantic parable about the conflict between the naive idealism of those who believe individuals should sacrifice for the collective we, and the stubbornness of the rugged individual who will not give up their personal liberty for the good of the whole. Kazan wrote that he understood both protagonists as being right, but he sympathized with the old woman, which is evident. 
Spoiler alert, as soon as she gives up her individual identity by giving into the pressure of the collective we, she dies. Almost 20 years after Wild River, Kazan would couch his HUAC testimony in similar terms to those shown in the film. For better or for worse, he had done what he had to do in order to keep from dying inside. He said, I don't think there's anything in my life toward which I have more ambivalence. Because obviously, there's something disgusting about giving other people's names. I won't say that what I did was entirely a good thing. But I would rather do what I did than crawl in front of a ritualistic left and lie the way those other comrades did and betray my own soul. I didn't betray it. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. This episode was produced and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. It was written by me and Matthew Desum. Our production and research assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Henry Malofsky. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, you must remember this podcast.com. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. And if you subscribe to us on iTunes, that really helps people find the show, as does rating and reviewing the show there. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.